Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The first fines in the Partygate scandal have been issued by the Met Police. But Boris Johnson has dodged questions about whether he's in trouble. To repeat that there will come a point uh, when I will be able uh, to uh, talk about the uh, investigation and the conclusions of the of the investigation. That is when the investigation has concluded. And I've no doubt at all that I will be back before this committee, uh, back before uh, the House of Commons, uh, to, to talk about it. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at the Prime Minister's position after some bumpy weeks of highs and lows. Has the Partygate scandal put him in trouble again, or has the worst of the danger passed? Has the Ukraine war provided him with a domestic respite? And how will all these issues play out in May's local elections? Political and diplomatic correspondent Laura Hughes will analyse, along with our special guest Paul Goodman, editor of the Conservative Home website. And later, we'll be looking at what is going on with the UK's energy strategy and how it intends to ensure better security, particularly after the war with Ukraine. Are we going to get a policy white paper and will nuclear power be at the heart of it? Chief political correspondent Jim Picard will explore with our energy correspondent Natalie Thomas. Thank you all for joining. Back in February, Partygate was the central story and the central danger facing Boris Johnson. Conservative MPs were putting less of no confidence in his position and it nearly reached the threshold of which a vote would be held on whether he remained Tory party leader. Then came the war in Ukraine and attention has rapidly focused away onto that, but also the cost of living crisis with on April the 1st, as we record this, the national insurance rise is coming along with the higher energy price cap. So where does this leave the prime minister? Is he still in danger, particularly if he or people around him get fined? Well, Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab was out defending Boris Johnson and said that he would explain in due course how he would remedy the situation. Prime Minister has already been clear. He's uh, taken responsibility for the things that shouldn't have happened in number 10. He's apologised for it. And more than that, he's overhauled number 10. That's already happened. Of course, we wait to see the outcome of the conclusion of the Met process. And there will be an opportunity then for an update on Sue Gray's report and full transparency around that. Laura Hughes, welcome back to the podcast. So the first fines have dropped. Do we think Boris Johnson is in deep trouble? It really is probably going to depend a little bit on whether or not the PM himself is actually fined, because we know he wasn't part of this first raft of 20 fixed penalty notices. And so he, for now, still appears to be in the clear. And if you speak to his sort of close allies, they believe that he still might be able to avoid being fined because he has argued or will argue that he thought he was attending work events. And obviously his particular scenario is slightly different because he lives where he works. And so the lines there do become a little bit blurred. 
it's a pretty extraordinary. I mean, the world has just completely changed over the last few months because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that has massively taken the heat off Johnson. And rightfully, everyone's attention has been on the atrocities happening overseas. But what it has also done, I think, for a lot of Tories who may have submitted letters of no confidence in back in January and were calling for him to resign, some of them have withdrawn those letters because they just don't feel as though it's appropriate to depose of a prime minister when you have a global crisis of this scale, of which Britain actually, to be fair, in some respects, is playing quite a vital role. And it's fascinating to see how Johnson's been on the phone to Zelensky a lot and the role that the UK is playing. So the kind of global context has helped him out. And that sort of makes me feel that the the general mood at the moment among Tory MPs is that in comparison to what's happening in in the big picture, it's not the time to get rid of him. He probably is safe for now. Paul Goodman, it's great to have you back on the podcast as well. Now, we don't know if Boris Johnson is going to be fined. His inner team say very strongly, I don't think he will be, but you couldn't rule it out. If he does receive a fine or if anyone very close to him does, do you think he will face a no-confidence vote given everything we've seen with Ukraine? There are three big factors swirling around in the political ether. One is party gate to those who are following it. Another is cost of living, and the third is the war. The confidence vote depends overwhelmingly on the war. If the war is continuing on its present trajectory, I don't think he's going to face a confidence vote. I doubt if it will happen until May, and we then have to see where we are on the war. I'll add one footnote to it, which is we've just completed another Conservative Home monthly panel. And we've not asked about Partygate since January. Interestingly, a very substantial minority of party members, according to the panel, do believe it is an important matter and it's not being overblown by the media. Last time round, I should say, was 42%. It's drifted down to 38%. That's not a big drop considering the war. So although all that's still going on, there's clearly a feeling in some sections of the party, yes, that party gate is a serious business. Now, Laura, the fact is that we're still trying to figure out who exactly has got these fines. And as of Friday morning, we know the first ones have landed to do's within Downing Street. If senior people around Boris Johnson, find not him personally, there is this sense that it will potentially sort of go away as an issue and Boris Johnson will come out and do a big apology and say, look, mistakes were made, but we've moved on and we've got basically more important things to face. How do you think that will go down with the public though? And how will that feed into May's local elections? Because we're obviously now into April and there's a good chance that in fact, those fines could drop before the local polls. And of course, Labour will use that to try and give the Tories a kicking. Yeah, and it's noticeable that Labour are still calling for him to resign despite the war. And when the fixed penalty notices were announced at the beginning of the week, it was unsurprising that Labour seized on them as evidence that the law had been broken. And clearly, when Boris Johnson came to the House of Commons and told MPs that at all times the rules had been followed, that there is a kind of massive discrepancy that the PM has sort of keeps using this word that understanding it was his understanding that no rules were broken and I think he'll probably use that to try and wriggle out of it if he himself doesn't get a fine and it is just the sort of top people around him 
there was a, a massive kind of debate at the beginning of the week as to whether or not we would actually get the names of those. But I do wonder if we sort of get to next month and it is just the kind of big names around him that maybe a lot of people don't really recognize or know, he might just get away with it. It really does depend. I mean, clearly this it is a hugely significant problem for the government that there were people in this country who were unable to sit with their loved ones as they died during a pandemic while the people that wrote the rules were parting away in number 10. That, that is clearly extraordinary. But I think that the, the kind of hope for Team Boris really is that when you look at what's happening in the kind of the world right now, it's, it's just not the right time to get rid of them. But clearly the, the May elections are going to be a chance for people to have their say and express their views. Interestingly, when you talk to Tory MPs, though, who are out on the doorsteps, I do think it's the, it's the cost of living crisis that is actually bothering most people at the moment. And the fact that Friday this week, UK households are facing a 54% increase in their energy bills. That is the thing that people care about. Well, let's listen to this exchange from Prime Minister's questions where this highlighted how important this issue is, where Keir Starmer tried to take Boris Johnson to task. Does the Prime Minister still think that he and the Chancellor are tax-cutting Conservatives? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, Mr Speaker, I certainly, I certainly do. If you take together what we're doing with income tax and national insurance, it's the biggest tax cut proposed by my uh, right honourable friend, the Chancellor, for 25 years. Yes, cut the nonsense. Yeah. And 2024, when there just so happens to be a general election, they will introduce a small tax cut. That's not taking difficult decisions. It's putting the Tory re-election campaign over and above helping people pay their bills. If we listen to Captain Hindsight, we would not have come out of we would not have come out of lockdown in July last year, Mr. Speaker. We would have stayed in lockdown over Christmas and New Year. He told the House no rules were broken in Downing Street during lockdown. The police have now concluded there was widespread criminality. I mean, we do do at least expect some consistency from uh, this this human weather vane. It was was only a week or so ago where he was saying that I, I shouldn't resign. Well, Paul, I think Laura is right that if you put the party gate into the context of cost of living, then it's clear which is really the thing that is most concerning Conservative MPs at the moment. We've got this Friday where you've got the national insurance rise kicking in, the new energy price cap, and the fallout from that spring statement really feels as if Rishunak misfired there, that both in terms of the Conservative press, in terms of voters, in terms of MPs, it just didn't really speak to the moment. And that feels in policy terms of it's a bit more problematic for the Johnson government. I'm sure all that is true. We are, of course, trying to cast everything forward to the local elections and what the verdict of the local elections will be on all this if there's no leadership challenge before then, largely because of the war. I'm just looking at a map now of where the local elections will take place. And it really is worth thinking about. West of about Ringwood, there will be no poll. No one's voting pretty much in Cornwall, in Dorset, in Devon. East Anglia is a blank as I look at this map. South of about Yorkshire on the east, there's another big gap. South of much of London, it's a mixed picture, but no one's voting. The point I'm making to you is that 
What drives Tory MPs after local elections is the anger of local associations and the anger of former councillors who've just lost seats. And in a lot of places, there is not going to be a contest at all. And I just throw that into the mix of the conversation just to wonder if the anger of Tory MPs the morning after local elections is really going to be as great as some people say. Well, I think that is an interesting point, Paul, and it's going to be local elections of two different sides to it. That you've obviously got London, which is where the Conservatives normally have got some strongholds and Wandsworth and Westminster could prove problematic. But then you've got those red wall places in the North and the Midlands where the Tories are hopeful of kind of sticking on there. So on net, it's probably not going to be too much of a positive picture because we're in midterm elections for a government that, you know, has gone through a lot over the past two years. But I guess even if there are some places where the Tories are making gain, say Sunderland or in South Yorkshire, for example, then the Prime Minister can stand up and say, look, we're still winning in the Red War. That's what matters. That's where the next election is going to be. So don't really think about getting rid of me at this moment. Well, I'm trying to think in terms of the subject that's preoccupying this discussion, which is a leadership challenge. I'm thinking about that rather more than what Boris Johnson will or won't say, though I'm sure you're, you're right about that. The point I'm trying to make is that as long as the war keeps raging, I can't see how Tory MPs can call a leadership election during it, even after the local elections, if it's going on in this way. But even if it's quietened down by then, a number of them won't have a driver in their seats to put in a letter to Graham Brady. Now, maybe they still will. Maybe there'll be a challenge. Maybe Boris Johnson will fall. There are a heck of a lot of Tory MPs who do not have all-out local elections in their seat. Now, Laura, to look at how things have gone for the Prime Minister this week, one issue that you and I have been writing about that has gone to the top of the agenda is this issue of trans right. And this was coincided with two things. First of all, Jamie Wallace, who's the MP for Bridgend in Wales, announced that he was a trans person. And this is how Boris Johnson dealt with it at PMQs. Mr Speaker, the whole House will have read the statement today from my honourable friend, the member for Bridgend. And I know uh, that the House stands uh, with you and will give you the support that you need to to live freely as yourself. Can I start by joining the Prime Minister in his remarks in relation to the honourable member for Bridgend? But Laura, that was sort of juxtaposed the night before where Boris Johnson had made a joke about Keir Starmer and the fact that the opposition leader has found himself in several situations where he's asked questions about, can you say what a woman is, trying to get down to this issue of how he feels about trans rights. And it feels as if these kind of cultural issues are safer territory for the Tories, particularly going to the local elections than the cost of living or the party gate. Where do you see the debate in the the party on this at the moment? One thing that is really interesting is that in the week that we saw Jamie Wallace become the first MP ever to come out as trans, we saw this sort of U-turn on a U-turn very late on Thursday night where leaked papers to ITV revealed that the government were not going to go ahead with a ban on conversion therapy for gay or bisexual people in the UK And there was a huge outcry from a lot of Tory MPs on Twitter and privately to number 10 in a way I think they weren't actually really expecting. And so very senior officials in Downing Street were were sort of saying, well, no, 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 it will will be in the Queen's speech. We We do care about this. We do want to ban this really controversial 
therapy that I think a large swathe of the population would, would agree is pretty horrendous. But interestingly, the, the government have dropped banning this conversion therapy for transgender people. So this row is can keep continuing on and on. And I think the, the whole week, if you look at it, at the beginning, it felt, and you picked this up in, in your reporting, that the debate, particularly about trans rights, could be a big part of the party's next election campaign. And that the Tories would try and kind of position themselves in opposition to the Labour on what they would characterise as a kind of war on woke. And actually what happened this week is you had a Tory come out saying that they were were trans. And then you had a lot of Tories coming out and being very vocal about this position to drop the ban on conversion therapy. So it actually felt a little bit as maybe the kind of Tories and Tory HQ and the kind of election strategists who are working on these things maybe got it a little bit wrong. And yes, of course, it's a lot more controversial within the Labour Party. They are struggling massively when you see Keir Starmer out on the airwaves and the the PM's line on all of this is much simpler. But I think it actually comes to the the public and the way that the public are polled. I think a lot of people are either not paying that much attention, but are generally quite sort of compassionate and open and, and believe that people should just be allowed to do what they want to do in their own lives. And it felt like the Tories got it a little bit wrong this week. I would expect them to try to hone in on this and it will definitely become more and more of an issue as we get closer to the election. Paul, do you think this so-called war on woke, as it's been described, is going to be a prominent thing that we've heard from Oliver Down, the Conservative Party chairman, who has put this front and centre of his speech at the party's spring conference? But we also know that Manira Mirza, who was Boris Johnson's chief policy aide, who I think was very eager on pushing forward these cultural debates, she's now left. But it feels like it is going to be a big issue. And is there any danger for the Tories there? Because I think, as you saw with the Jamie Wallace thing, although I think the Prime was not taking sort of jokes out of trans people, was taking jokes out of Keir Starmer. There is a risk with these things. If you push too hard, it might backfire. What conversion therapy is has to be defined one way or another. And if someone counselling a young person who may not know what they want to do or who they want to be, if that becomes conversion therapy and is caught by the law, that could be a very, very difficult thing for people working in the NHS and working more widely in civil society. And so this is going to be a hot potato, whoever introduces it. However, I want to just step back for a moment from the rights and wrongs and the ins and outs of the conversion therapy bill, just to look at all this in very big, simple terms. Although there are differences within the Tories about it, this is not really a major priority issue for them. The place where this is being debated out in agonizing detail is within the Labour Party itself. To Labour, trans rights and all that are very, very important. So looking ahead to the election, I think what matters more than what the Tories do or do not want to make of it is what you as an ordinary voter think about it all. My guess is that for the ordinary voter, All this stuff is very secondary to the issues that affect the most. Cost of living, state of the health service, whether their incomes are going to grow this year, what childcare they're able to get for their kids. And if Labour continues to focus on this issue, it's not going to do the Labour Party any good. And that's Labour's real weakness on this issue. It's not what the Tories do and don't do about it. 
I think that's absolutely right. And of course, both sides are trying to frame these debates in a way that is helpful to them. And finally, Laura, I think one line that I think we've heard quite a lot from Dominic Raab and others this week is this idea they say Boris Johnson gets the big things right, whether it's on the coronavirus response, that yes, there were individual decisions that were wrong, but in terms of the vaccine rollout, that was one thing that was right with regards to Ukraine. That was another thing that was right. And then on cost of living, they hope that is the case too. With particular regards to Ukraine and the UK's response there, it has certainly given the Prime Minister a bit of breathing room before those local elections. But is that going to be enough, do you think? And will people look at just much more minutiae things rather than these broader foreign policy issues? I think that the war provides Johnson with a kind of argument to his own MPs not to take action against him. But I think when it actually comes to voters, it's going to be these rocketing energy bills, it's going to be the cost of living crisis, it's going to be petrol prices going up. From from today, all of us are feeling in very real terms a squeeze. And if our monthly uh, you know, outcomes and incomes are looking so quite you know dramatically different within the space of a month, people are going to be angry and they're going to be upset. And of course, There are many reasons, global reasons, why these things are happening. But ultimately, the prime minister is the man in charge. And so if I was working in number 10, that would be the sort of number one concern that I had at the moment. And I think that is what is going to pose the biggest danger for him over the next few months. And very briefly, Paul, last word to you. Do you think the PM's response to Ukraine will offer him any respite politically? At the local elections, I'm really not so sure. I think that... um, Although it's pretty evident if you look at, say, the Politico poll of polls, that he has been closing the gap. Come the local elections, you'd expect people to kick the government and you'd expect them to kick it very heavily about cost of living. That's not really my preoccupation about these elections. What strikes me is just the sheer number of people who won't be voting rather than the number of people who will be, and whether that makes any difference to the verdict as it's returned and to what Tory MPs do afterwards. Paul and Laura, thank you very much. The war in Ukraine has returned two buzzwords to the political lexicon, energy security. With oil and gas prices rising rampantly, the government has been desperately trying to pull together a new policy paper that will set out how the UK will be less reliant on other questionable powers for its energy, namely Russia. But the paper has been delayed at least three or four times by my count, with a good old cross Whitehall Barney about what exactly the UK's energy future should look like. Is it more renewables, such as onshore wind, as the Department for Business would like? Or is it more oil exploration and fracking, as Tory MPs have argued? The answer right now is that no one seems to know. Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the International Trade Secretary, told LBC that nuclear should be at the heart of the strategy, whatever it is and whenever it's released. I think there's a really important piece as we drive through both our renewables and clean energy, as we grow our nuclear industry as well, to ensure that we can move away from gas in the medium term to the baseload being nuclear. And the Prime Minister is very keen to support that as well. Well, Jim Picard, welcome back to the pod. Boris Johnson has been going around describing this situation as a generation of failure. Is that fair? Well, it's not a total failure in the sense of we can still light our homes and we can still drive around and the country hasn't ground to a halt. Has it been a failure in strategic planning, though? If the aim of your energy policy is to get to a more low-carbon future, 
progress has been very patchy. Yes, the amount of renewables in the electricity system has risen very sharply as it's become more economically viable. But I think if you look at nuclear in particular, which requires an awful lot of long-term planning, it has been a a litany of failure. And if you listen to Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's Questions, he always likes to pour scorn on how the Labour Party, when they were in power, didn't do much on nuclear and didn't get anything off the ground, which is, of course, true. The Conservatives have been in power for 12 years. And in that time, they've only really approved one nuclear power station, which is Hinkley Point in Somerset. And that is running nearly a decade late. It won't be ready until 2027. So there are elements of energy policy which have not exactly been a roaring success. Well, Natalie Thomas, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Can you just set us out and give us a bit of a sense of what the UK's energy mix is at the moment and where the government would like it to be? So when we talk about energy mixes, quite often people just focus on electricity. The decarbonisation of electricity is a real success story for the UK because we have almost phased out coal. There's been a huge surge of renewables in the the past decade. But if we look at the total energy mix, which is the really important thing that we need to consider, you know, taking in, for example, heating and buildings and things like that, three quarters of our energy still comes from fossil fuels, from oil and gas. And that is the problem that Boris Johnson's government is facing. And, you know, heavy reliance on imported fossil fuels in particular has really just come to the fore in the last nine months, but especially since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I have some good stats from last year. In 2021, the UK's net imports were the equivalent of 62% of its gas and 18% of its oil. So you can see from those that when it comes to gas, you know, there's a particularly acute problem. Okay, Jim, let's let's look at the idea of this policy paper that, as I said, following the war in Ukraine, which has sent oil and gas prices rising. And obviously, we've got on top of that, the net zero concerns as well. Boris Johnson's government have been trying to pull together this policy paper. And I think I am right in saying it's been delayed about four times. Can you take us into why exactly that is? Because there is, it's not just personalities for once, it's a real policy dispute between what Downing Street wants, what the Department for Business wants, and also what Conservative MPs would like. I think we do know the broad parameters of what is in this strategy. And I think we should get away from the idea that this is some kind of handbrake turn or or some enormous change from existing energy policy from literally a month ago. And the policy is basically this. The government wants to get to a place where they phase out oil and gas from the electricity system by 2035. The new thing, I suppose, in this strategy is that Only a few months ago, there was a big emphasis on COP, all about saving the planet and getting to 2050 net zero. What has changed since then is that the government never went totally hostile on on North Sea oil, but it was getting a bit uncomfortable about did it look hypocritical to be approving North Sea oil fields and gas fields whilst trying to save polar bears. What the Russian invasion has done is that it's given them a sharp shock and made them come to the conclusion that we still need gas to reach net zero. A lot of people don't understand that net zero requires a huge amount of gas for decades to come. And even after 2050, under net zero, they theorize that you can still use gas, but you use something called carbon capture and storage to take the carbon out of it. And therefore, ministers come to the conclusion that if we're going to be burning all this gas and oil, it would be foolish to not use our own domestic resources instead of depending on oil and gas from places like Saudi Arabia 
or Russia. So I think the new emphasis on encouraging North Sea oil is quite a major change. It doesn't necessarily change things on the ground in, in that the government hadn't rejected any North Sea oil fields. You know, Cambo last year was one which was cancelled by Shell or Shell pulled out of it, but they did so because Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland was making hostile noises about it. And they say that was an economic decision. In terms of why we've had this delay, yes, it was meant to come out two, three, four weeks ago. The main point of contention is not necessarily that people are arguing about what the mix of energy should be in, in the paper. It's really whether the Treasury is prepared to put up the amount of money that you need to do the amount of nuclear. And Rishi Sunak and his people are quite rightly pointing out that the money for that needs to come from somewhere. The private sector hasn't been very good at building nuclear power stations without subsidy. And that seems to be the main point of the haggling. But I think that there has been a, a little bit of back and forth about onshore wind as well. Right. Well, that's the next thing that I'd like to come to you about because people I've spoken to at senior levels at Whitehorse say onshore wind would be the quickest and easiest way to lessen our energy dependence on countries like Russia because it's relatively cheap. It can be done quite quickly. You can get these things built in a short period of time, although we don't have the onshore supply chain we once did for onshore wind. But as Jim was just saying, it's pretty unpopular with Conservative MPs, even though I think there's some polling doing the rounds on social media that shows actually it's pretty popular people who live there, but Conservative MPs don't don't want to see these wind turbines on their green and pleasant land, which means that it feels like there's a bit of backwards and forwards going on here about whether it's actually going to happen. As you know, I mean, onshore wind's been contentious since about 2015 when David Cameron decided to move against it. And in theory, at the moment, you can still apply to build onshore wind farms. It's just that in England in particular, the sort of planning process is really stacked against it. As you say, though, it can be in theory, constructed very, very quickly. Greg Jackson, the chief executive of Octopus Energy, which is Britain's fifth biggest energy supplier, also owns a lot of renewables generation in Europe. He said that if you actually fast-tracked planning process and, and treated renewable energy and the development of it and the construction of it in the same way as uh, COVID vaccines were treated during the pandemic, you know, really made it a national security and, and a national priority, then you could construct onshore wind farms in, in, in as little as two years compared to, you know, nearly a decade at the moment. So to make onshore wind work, I mean, it's industry has been sort of banging the drum on this for years and, and you know, talking about planning and electricity grids and things like that is quite dull. But that's what they would really need to do. They would need to get a lot of impetus behind the planning process to make sure that the presumption is always in favour of onshore wind rather than against it, which, you know, developers say is, is the case at the moment. Well, we know Boris Johnson has got his clear answer to this because this is what he told the House of Commons Liaison Committee this week. For long term, uh, medium term, we've got to be looking at, uh, at big ticket uh, nuclear solutions, Sizewell and other projects, uh, but we've also got to be looking at, at small modular reactors. So, Jim, this is the focus of what Downing Street is pushing for, which is nuclear. And I think you've reported the PM has had an overnight conversion that you have to go all in on building more nuclear power stations. First of all, you've got the big scale one. So you mentioned Hinkley Point was approved by the Theresa May government. Then you've also got the prospect of another station at Sizewell in Suffolk and then also Bradwell in Essex. Now, you've written an awful lot about this over the years. It's not that simple. It's very expensive. And a lot of it's with unproven technology. 
technology. So why is the PM so keen on it? So the thing to understand crucially about energy is that renewable energy is all well and good, but sometimes the wind doesn't blow and sometimes the sun doesn't shine. And that intermittency is less of a problem when renewables are a small part of your energy mix. But the more you rely on them, the more you have to deal with that intermittency. And that is where things come in, like having to turn gas power stations on and off at short notice. Also, they look at things like batteries to store that energy again when the wind isn't blowing. But that's all quite expensive. Some of that technology is still quite embryonic. And in the meantime, you need base load, you need energy that's being produced all the time. And that's where nuclear comes into it. When you look at how, how much the price of renewables has fallen or the, their need for subsidy has fallen in recent years, it does make the strike price for Hinkley Point, which was agreed when Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader, was the energy secretary in the coalition 10 years ago. That price is looking very, very expensive compared to the price of renewables. And those people who oppose nuclear say that that trend's only going to continue. And therefore, if you start agreeing deals now and new nuclear power stations with generous subsidies, they could look eye-washingly expensive in the future. And then you have all sorts of politics as well and other problems. So you, the Hinkley Point is going ahead in, in Somerset led by EDF. And then you have Sizewell C in Suffolk, which again is EDF. But on that project, they have a junior partner called CGN, which is from China. And given relations between Beijing and London are in the deep freeze, ministers are quite keen to eject them from the £20 billion project. The only problem is they need private sector investors to come in Governments promised to take a stake to try and encourage them, but things aren't exactly moving very fast there. And then the third one in theory, which could be built, is Wilver in Wales, and there's an American consortium offering to take that on after Hitachi, the previous owner, pulled out. But there's hardly any movement there, and people close to that project, like many others, have been blaming the Treasury's lack of commitment and lack of financial promises for the fact that nothing is really going on in Wales. The other main issue with nuclear is the time it takes to build. The fact that Hinkley Point C in Somerset is, it's been dogged by construction delays and cost overruns and other plants in Europe that are using the same technology have been in an even worse situation. So that's the main issue with nuclear is that it takes at least 10 years to build a new nuclear plant. The Rolls-Royce small modular reactors that the government is very excited about. The first one isn't even being envisaged until the early 2030s. So, you know, nuclear, yes, it can provide that base load when renewables are not operating, but it's not going to be a quick fix to simply build these nuclear plants to try and fill the gaps. And they really have dragged their feet on nuclear because all the while, while they've been thinking about building new nuclear plants, we've had old ones retiring. We had Dungeness in Kent, also another in Scotland that recently retired You know, in, in the past year. We're down to six nuclear plants now. We entered the decade with about nine gigawatts of nuclear. And by the end of the decade, we will be down to 4.45 gigawatts of nuclear. So we're talking about adding nuclear, but in reality, we're also just replacing existing plants that are very old now and, and their life cannot be extended much further. This is the reason why the business department in its submission towards the energy security strategy has put forward loads of onshore wind and loads of solar because these are the technologies that you can ramp up really quickly and you can build them in a year or two. But you'll notice that until now, there haven't been targets for either of those technologies. There is a target for offshore wind, 
There's no target for solar or onshore wind. And there's a very obvious reason for that, which is that it angers a lot of Tory MPs. And when you see Boris Johnson talking about renewables in public, he never says, we're going to stop onshore wind or I hate onshore wind. He keeps emphasizing his love of offshore wind because he's petrified if he does say the government has an intention to build more onshore wind, then he's basically going to metaphorically be lynched by his own backbenchers. So let's see what happens when the document finally lands. I suspect that they will continue to increase onshore wind. Kwasi Kwarteng wants it to basically double by 2030. But I don't think Boris Johnson is going to be hailing that particular element of it from the rooftops. And finally, Natalie, just on the last element of this we haven't mentioned, which is an awful lot of talk from Conservative MPs about fracking and those who are part of the net zero scrutiny group who are, I think, as you can guess by the name, not entirely enamoured with the government's energy strategy towards net zero. They've been arguing the government needs to get fracking and it's not going to happen, is it? No one has successfully fully fracked a well in the United Kingdom. Quadrilla partially fracked two exploration wells in Lancashire, but they couldn't actually complete those tests because they kept on causing earth tremors. So fracking, there are still so many unknowns. I mean, there are some great estimates of how much shale gas potentially lies in, in areas in northern England and the Midlands. But when you speak to some other, you know, very well-established geologists, they say that, you know, we're sorry, but the UK, the geology here simply is not appropriate for it. So to rely on fracking, I think, would be a very risky strategy. But there is also one other big elephant in the room here, and that is decreasing demand. It's just something that politicians don't really like to talk about because it's not terribly sexy. It's energy efficiency, improving insulation in homes. And, you know, if it comes to it, if there is a big problem and Russia suddenly cuts off gas supplies to Europe... There are bodies such as the International Energy Agency, which is a very respected think tank base in Paris, who are saying, you know, governments are simply going to have to tell families and households to maybe turn down their thermostats by a few degrees, um, stick to lower speed limits on roads. You know, we're really going to have to get demand down. And if we're looking at the quickest fixes, the quickest way of phasing out Russian oil and gas, actually decreasing demand is the quickest way that we can do that. But for some reason, it's almost entirely absent from the political debate around this. When this paper is finally out and the government's answered some of these tricky questions, we'll have you both back to dissect it. Jim and Natalie, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please subscribe and you can find us through all the usual channels to receive your episodes when they're released every Saturday. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Yang Sixworth. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.